0: I had a pound for the number of times people have asked me for an A player or someone with, you know, really exceptional communication skills. I'd be a very rich woman. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean by exceptional communication skills? Are you talking for someone who can negotiate with terrorists and who's never lost a hostage, (laughs) or someone you know who can talk to an upset customer on the phone and turn them into a really happy customer? Or someone who can deal at the moment, you know, if you think about all the people in, in hospitals having to deal with some really upset, worried, frightened people. In that context, the communication skills of some of those people are absolutely phenomenal, but they probably wouldn't want to stand up in front of 200 people and give a talk. Mm-hmm. The communication skills, you've got to be really clear. And the easiest way to do that is to think, what do I need this person to achieve? How would I know they were doing a good job? and start jotting those things down. Um, But it's hard and it takes quite a while to do that. But if you get that bit wrong, it doesn't really matter what you do for the rest of your campaign because you're not going to get the right person. I think that's the fundamental thing.
1: You are listening to the Align Remotely podcast, the show dedicated to helping you lead distributed teams under difficult circumstances. I'm the host, Luke Shermer, and I've participated in or run distributed teams for almost a decade. As a practitioner, I'm speaking with experts on leadership, strategic alignment, and remote work to help you navigate the issues you start facing after you get your working from home gear sorted. Welcome, welcome, welcome back. So today I am excited to be speaking with a world-class expert in hiring. Nancy Schlesinger has a really unique approach to doing so. Coming from a pretty technical background, she's come up with a process for vetting and choosing candidates for all kinds of roles. And she's so confident in it that she she guarantees the results for up to a year after the hiring process is completed. So if the candidate leaves within a year, then she basically guarantees you your money back as a hiring manager. So I've invited Nancy on the podcast today to discuss both her process and also what it means for hiring in general in... The unique environment that we find ourselves in. And today we'll cover topics like why people who interview well may be your worst performers and vice versa, and what to do about it. Why bomb disposal unit experts get rotated every few years and what that means for your hiring process. How to make sure you really are hiring employees that fit the job you need done. And without further ado, here's Nancy. Nancy Schlesinger, welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into recruiting in the first place?
0: Well, um, and I'll I'll try to keep it reasonably short because I don't want people nodding off here, Luke. But basically, I was a production manager in an electronics factory. And so I had to recruit people into my own department I was like 21 and I had about 40 people working for me. So that was um, why I was hiring people because they were actually to work for me. But one of the things I noticed was that there were a lot of people there who just weren't really that good at their jobs. So I wondered, well, how did that happen and why did we hire those people? In defence of that company, I will say that there was an employment problem at the time. So it was almost like if someone had a pulse, you, you took them. Anyway, what I did was I went round to my colleagues. There were about six of us, production managers. And I asked people what, who their best three and worst three people were. And in production, it's actually quite easy to measure that because it's a numbers thing. Are they producing the right amount of staff? Is it the right level of quality and so on? So people gave me those names and I then went to the HR department. I got out all their application details, put them in two piles, good, the bad. And then I went through them and looked for correlations. And I found lots of correlations, but they weren't all the things I was expecting. What was a real surprise was that in that really good pile were many people who'd only just scraped through and we almost hadn't hired. And in the really bad pile, lots of people who we thought were going to be fantastic and they turned out not to be good at all. So to me, that was really interesting. I thought, well, how is that happening? So I started do, doing some research into what was going wrong. And there were some key things. Now, remember, these were production people. So you want a really particular kind of person on the shop floor. And so one of the things you were looking for is manual dexterity, because they're doing things with their hands and they're actually very skilled people. So we had this little test where you had a pair of tweezers and you had these little metal pins, and to pick the metal pins up with the tweezers and put them in some holes that were drilled in a block of wood. Pretty straightforward, you might think. So we would judge them by how many they could put in in a certain period of time. There was this kind of number, if they'd only put in 60 or whatever, that was it, they were out. Well, people who only just got enough pins turned out to be some of our absolutely best people. And the ones who did it all really easily turned out not to be good. Totally counterintuitive. And the reason was because the people who did it really well were quite extroverted. So they weren't nervous when they were doing the test and they'd just do it and that was fine. Whereas the more introverted people would be really nervous. Their hand would be shaking. They couldn't get the pins in the holes. They'd be really, really worried. But they were the sort of people that if you sat them down at a bench, taught them how to do something, it may be they took a bit longer to learn it. But once they'd got it, that was it. They would just keep going like a steamroller. Nothing would stop them, and they just churn the stuff out, and it would all be repeatable and good quality. Whereas the people who were the more extroverted ones, they easily got distracted, they lost concentration, they wanted to do something different, they got bored. So not only did they not do a good job in their own job, they'd actually go around disrupting the people who were doing a good job. To so say that was... <laughs> I know, you know, when I say it like that, it's really obvious, isn't it? But initially I could see how we'd got that wrong. But the the stupid thing was we hadn't checked. We'd done the test and we'd never checked to see if actually people with good results on that test turned out to be people who were good in production. mean, another really simple thing was in electronics, there's resistor colour code, which you may be familiar with, where you look at the little resistors, it's got little coloured bars on to tell you how many ohms it is, like orange for three and red for four, two for yellow, still know it after all these years. And if you're colour blind, that is a bit of a problem. And we didn't do a test for colour blindness. So, you know, that was another basic thing. And then another one was if you couldn't see the wires, the wires were about twice the thickness of a human hair in my department. And half the people we hired couldn't actually see the wires. There were some really simple things that actually, without much effort, you could get a lot better. But the key thing was looking at what you're doing, what you're testing, and does it actually give you the result you think it's going to give you? And, of course, sometimes it does, and other times it doesn't. Hmm. So that's how I got into it. And I also made some really bad mistakes. I mean, you know, really bad (laughs)
1: Well, um, I mean, I think it, that was before you did that analysis or yeah. afterwards.
0: Yeah. And, and afterwards, because <laughs> <laughs> hiring is really difficult. The better you think you are at it, quite often the worse you are, because you get a bit blase. Sometimes I think we should do it a bit like the bomb disposal units in the army, where they only let you do it for about three years, because after three years, you get a bit blase and start making mistakes. There's a time limit on how long you can do it, apparently. So a bomb-disposed person told me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So you've got to be really careful not to get complacent and think your interviewing skills are really good and you can just do an interview without preparing and all that kind of stuff. Because I don't think you can,
1: personally. So what are common things that people assume are true about hiring that aren't? That's a really good question. (laughs)
0: writing a good resume is really difficult and by a good one I mean one that actually accurately represents your skills and what you can do for a company I wouldn't even write my own resume I'd get someone to help me do it because it's really hard to be honest and straightforward about yourself so lots of people get professionals like me I'm, I'm just helping someone with one at the moment and unbelievably the guy's a copywriter so you'd think you'd be able to write a really good resume and that he's made some basic fundamental mistakes. So don't rely on CVs and resumes because, first of all, they quite often exaggerate things. Quite often there are things on there that aren't actually true. But probably worse than that, they don't include really key good information because your job's going to be different to other jobs they've applied for. So there are going to be things that this person's done that they haven't bothered to put on their resume because they just don't think it would be relevant or they've just forgotten, that would be really good to know. Mm -hmm. When you don't know them, you just toss that resume aside, don't see that person. So I think you miss a lot of good people by relying on resumes and CVs.
1: So presumably you have a different way of doing that first cut when you have a lot of people. So how do you do that?
0: Yeah, we do that by asking them to fill out an application form. I mean, you ask which are the biggest mistakes, and I think probably the even bigger mistake, which is really fundamental, is not being absolutely clear about what you need, which is very difficult, especially I think a lot of the people that might be listening to this will be hiring someone for a new post. So it's not as though you're replacing someone who is perfect, which makes it a lot easier because then you can say, well, we want someone just like Luke with three degrees in this and all these other skills and speaks two languages or have many we speak or whatever. When you are hiring for a totally new post, you can't do that. So you have to be really clear about what you need that person to be able to achieve. Most clients come to us and they say, We we want someone who's got these really great interpersonal skills, who's an A player. <laughs> it's like, what does that mean? <laughs> if I had a pound for the number of times people have asked me for an A player, or someone with, you know, really exceptional communication skills, I'd be a very rich woman. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean by exceptional communication skills? Are you talking for someone who can negotiate with terrorists and who's never lost a hostage? (laughs) Or someone, you know, who can talk to an upset customer on the phone and turn them into a really happy customer? Or someone who can deal at the moment? You know, if you think about all the people in, in hospitals, having to deal with some really upset, worried, frightened people. In that context, the communication skills of some of those people are absolutely phenomenal, but they probably wouldn't want to stand up in front of 200 people and give a talk. Mm -hmm. Communication skills, you've got to be really clear. And the easiest way to do that is to think, what do I need this person to achieve? How would I know they were doing a good job? And start jotting those things down. Um, But it's hard and it takes quite a while to do that. But if you get that bit wrong, it doesn't really matter what you do for the rest of your campaign because you're not going to get the right person. I think that's the fundamental thing.
1: Hmm. So basically this form would reflect what you're looking for?
0: Right. So what we do is when we've worked out what the person actually needs to be able to do, what the skills and behaviours we're looking for and the values are, we then devise a way to check each one of those criteria. So we could have, say, 50 or 70 criteria and we look for a way of checking each one of those and we pick out some of those to go on the application form. So we try to pick the key things because what you're trying to do is if, you know, if you've got 100 people, you want to whittle that down as quickly and easily as you can to the four or five people who have got the kinds of skills you're looking for and that's quite a good way to do it much easier than sorting
1: through resumes and CVs. Does it matter what type of skill it is?
0: Not in my experience, no. We do it for all different skills. We had someone complain the other day that at his level he shouldn't have to fill in this form. (laughs) And it turns out that judges in this country have to go through a, a process not unlike the one that we put people through Lots of senior people have to go through a process hmm. like that. And we do it for warehouse people, for PAs, for admin people. Obviously, the questions are completely different for each role. And even if it's the same role in two different companies, the questions are still different because the jobs are different, the cultures different, and so on.
1: So let's say you've whittled it down to the the five or so that you want to speak to what's your approach to interviews and how to figure out amongst those five right okay
0: let's say you've got 70 different criteria you pick out some of those that will then go on the application form and that filters out most of your candidates And then you use the rest of those questions when you're interviewing people. Now, we tend to do two interviews, so we do one for our clients and then we send them an interview that they do for the final candidates. And quite often that could just be one or two people because we've filtered out everything else. It depends on what you're trying to do. We have one particular criterion that we apply to virtually every role that we hire for, and that is, Does the person take responsibility or do they blame people? Do they blame others for things when they go wrong? Mm. Because in my experience, working with people who just blame other people when things go wrong is not much fun. It's a really damaging way to behave. I mean, it can be not too much of a problem, but it can also lead to all kinds of issues. So for us, if someone fails that hurdle, then no matter how good they are on everything else, basically, they failed. But depending on the job, sometimes if you've got 90% of what the client requires, then actually that's fine because they can learn the rest of it. But you ask questions at the interview to find out if the person has actually done the sorts of things and achieved the kinds of things you need them to do or if they could learn how to do this. Because most people aren't looking for exactly the job they've already got. They're looking to progress in some in some way. So, you know, you're not going to get someone who's just going from director of whatever it is to exactly the same in
1: another job. Well, I think also, especially as you go up, there's Mm -hmm. a different mix of skills required depending on the company, certainly for roles like product manager, where it could be marketing based. Another one, it could be almost a developer, for example. Yeah, Yeah, uh, absolutely. And all all under the same label. (laughs)
0: Oh, yeah. That's another minefield, actually, now that you've brought that up, is job titles. Job titles, it's got a lot worse since I was young, when I don't think there were that many different jobs like there are now. And the job titles can be just nothing like what you'd think they were. And we're, we're advertising the same job in Australia and the U.S. at the moment completely different job titles for exactly the same job so you've got to research that really carefully because if you get that wrong you are just not going to get the candidates that you need because people won't be looking for it it's a seo thing basically
1: hmm. right but within job posting systems like monster interesting so you have this process that you have defined from first principles how is it different than what people would instinctively do if they're looking for someone?
0: Well, I think most people, they start off by saying, we want a product manager. So they'll come to us with the job title, and then we'll go through it with them. And, and we'll say, actually, this isn't a product manager, this is something else. So the first thing they would have got wrong would be advertising for the wrong thing. And they would do some ads that is just, oh, we're a great company, come and work for us, it's going to be fantastic a little bit about the company and really not much about the job, or it's a very flattering view of the job. Now, what happens then is, first of all, you don't get the right applicants because you've got your job title wrong. Secondly, they think it's all going to be this particular role, all lovely, and it then turns out not to be. So, of course, they're not going to be happy, they're not going to be the right person, and they'll probably leave. One of the things I think it's really important to do is to be absolutely honest about what the job really is. And some people are quite reluctant to do that but what they forget is that there are parts of the job because quite often our clients they used to do this bit themselves because they're entrepreneurs who are growing their company so they used to do everything themselves when it first started and then they're you know gradually delegating things off and these are things they don't like doing they just love doing the marketing but they hate doing the actual sending the stuff out organizing the manufacture or something And so what they'll do is they won't be very explicit about the bits they didn't like because they sort of think nobody else likes this because I don't like it. (laughs) It's actually, that's not true at all. There are loads of people who actually love doing the things you hate doing. And we actually did an ad years ago, which I think the headline was, help, can you sort me out? My desk is a mess. I need someone who can do these things which I hate. Got an absolutely fantastic woman because she loved looking after other people. And tidying up after them. I know that sounds bizarre, but (laughs) there are people who like to do that. And they like the other people to do those bits they don't like doing. So, in fact, years ago, (laughs) a woman said to me in my department, I I was looking at how much people like their jobs. I was trying to find out how to make jobs more enjoyable for, for the people in this factory I was running. And I sat down with this woman, Margaret, lovely woman, really skilled. And I said to her, do you like this job? And she said, this is my favourite job in the whole factory. And I said, oh, come on, you don't have to say that just because it's me that you're talking to. Tell me, why do you like this job? And she pointed to a job in the corner of the factory. She said, well, I would hate that job over there because you're just doing 10 little things on a board. It's a printed circuit board every few minutes. And it's boring. It's just not enough variety. And I thought, OK. And she said, you also sat on your own. so You can't talk to your friends okay that makes sense and then she pointed to the job that would have been my favorite which was making the prototypes and she said and I would hate that job I said you'd be really good at it and she said I would be so nervous I was going to make a mistake and I thought okay and it's too complicated for me to chat to my friends while I'm doing it so I thought that makes total sense and then she said but I love this job because it's complicated enough not to be boring but it's not so complicated I can't chat to my friends while I'm doing it and know that I'm doing a good job <laughs> And a printed circuit board would arrive in front of her. She'd put in all these components. It would move to the next person. Another one would arrive. She did it all day. And then I thought, yeah, that's great. She's turned to me with this look of pity in her eyes, put her hand on my shoulder and said, but it must be awful doing your job because every time something goes wrong, everyone thinks it's your fault. (laughs) (laughs) And that was one of my all-time favourite jobs. I loved that job. It had never occurred to me that someone might not want that job. <laughs> but it was like, wow, what, what arrogance. Never thought of it. But she taught me such a lesson. So you always have to think there is going to be a person who will love this job. Be totally honest about it, as clear as you can, and people, the right people, will then think, I'd love that job where everyone thinks it's my fault when everything goes wrong.
1: Changing direction a little bit, although not completely. Where do you fall on the importance of cultural fit versus competence? Mm. Versus other factors. Uh, that is
0: such an interesting question. I've actually just been reading something about this recently. Have you read the book "Messy" by Tim Harford? No, I will I just plug it because it's really worth looking. At. I'm a great fan of Tim Harford. He talks about whether we should be really well organized and spend all our time filing things and all that kind of stuff, but also about diversity and the benefits of diversity and how groups where you've mixed things up a bit and you've got someone in there you don't really like or whatever, actually seem to achieve more. I think you have to be really careful about cultural fit versus am I just recruiting more me's or more people who are the same, who are never going to challenge anything, never going to have any different ideas. And when I hired probably one of the best people I've ever hired years ago, who was our bookkeeper and The kind of personality of a bookkeeper is someone who's a bit annoying because they're a nitpicker. They need to be able to look at something and say, "Uh, Nancy, there's one P wrong here. (laughs) What? But that's what a bookkeeper's there for. They need to say, your expenses are a day late, so you're not getting paid. She used to do that. She used to say, "Yeah, if they're not there by the 20th of the month, you just don't get them until next month. I own the company, Luke, but I still had to. (laughs) <laughs> by these rules. But the thing was, she was great for the company because we needed someone who wasn't as laid back as I was about those sorts of things. i like everything to be perfect, but I'm not as fussed about it as she was. And so it was fantastic. And she would pull us up on things, but throw in other ideas that we hadn't thought of. Absolutely great. She was so dedicated. She was still working from it for us from her hospital bed. When she was literally dying. The point that Tim Harford makes is that when you look at how well and say towns and cities do, the ones that have immigrants, and you're Polish, my dad's an immigrant from Germany, the ones that have immigrants in them are more successful because those people come in with new ideas, new perspectives and so on, see things in different ways, he talks about when Hitler got rid of all the Jews in science in Germany, Mm. (laughs) basically wiped out science in Germany for quite some time because he took away a group that was adding a lot, a lot of good ideas. So I think you need people who share your values. And we have some very clear values in my company. And the key one, and that, I've realised over the years it is the absolute heart of everything we do is that every candidate, we should be able to, honestly and openly, and clearly give them feedback that will help them in the future if they didn't get the job. I mean, obviously, and if they did as well. Of course, it's a bit easier in that case. (laughs) But if we can't do that, then we're not doing our job properly because we should just be able to put our hand on our heart and say, look, Luke, in this role, we need someone who can spell perfectly In your application form, there were these four spelling errors and there were 10 in your CV. So if you want this kind of job, you're going to have to do something about that. But what I'd probably also do is say, quite frankly, Luke, I'd be looking somewhere else if I were you because this isn't suited to you. You You need to look at a role where these other skills that you've got are more important. But that's really key to me and it sets how we do everything basically. So it means we have totally clear criteria, totally clear ways of finding those things out and of treating people. We don't always get it absolutely right, obviously, but we certainly try to.
1: Clarity is absolutely critical. How do you go about achieving that level of clarity?
0: <laughs> Sometimes it's not that difficult, but it, it can be because I think a lot of people, if you go back to that communication thing, they'll just be saying, oh yeah, we want a really good communicator. Well, what do you mean? Well, you know, just a really good communicator, you know. (laughs) So the easiest way to do that is to take people through actual specific situations and say, right, what is a really difficult communication situation this person would have to deal with? How would you expect them to behave? You know, What would you want them to achieve? in that situation on the values, quite a lot of people have worked out values because to me that's the thing when you're talking about cultural match. Yeah. If they've got the right values, then usually that works. But I think you have to be a bit careful about cultural stuff. I mean there wasn't there a thing just recently some guy won a case because he'd been told he wasn't going to be a cultural fit to fit in with a, a bunch of eight women who he'd actually been working with for the last year. Hmm. And, oh, the trouble is that was just a headline and it could have been totally valid. Yeah. I don't know. He might have been behaving quite offensively. So I don't know yeah. the details, but I'd really advise people to get people from outside their sort of normal group if you possibly can. But the values are the, the key thing.
1: I think there is an argument for keeping the values central, and it could be mm. a wide variety, probably, you know, different types of people. So you still get yeah. that plurality of <laughs> perspectives. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the key
0: thing about the values is values drive behavior, right? So if you're not there, but someone shares your values, then when you're not there and they have to make a decision, they're more likely to do the kind of thing you would have liked them to have done. If you've got the right values they drive your behavior so you will do the right thing when whoever's in charge isn't there if you haven't got those that then can be a real problem and that is when I, I used to do a lot of work with people who were so-called difficult people and I'd be there kind of trying to turn them into good employees and the biggest problems are when they just didn't share the right values And then it was like, this is going to be a lot of effort and we're not really going to get a good result at the end of the day, so really, really important.
1: As you can hear, Nancy's got a great way of quickly getting across the key points related to hiring, which maybe feels quite abstract and difficult to get your head around. I think my biggest takeaway is the importance of process even in this context and, and in particular going back and check if it's actually telling you what you think it's telling you because just having one isn't really enough. You may be following your process but actually hiring people that then turn out to be a bad fit. Tune in next time for part two of the discussion. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Align Remotely podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.